Your Excellencies, Your Graces, my Lords, Reverend Fathers, Reverend Sisters, friends of Blessed John Henry Newman, one and all. Newman's idea of a Catholic university, an alma mater, not a foundry, not a mint or a treadmill. Newman famously described a Catholic university as an alma mater. What he imagined was something like an Oxbridge College, where a diligent master knows the students by name, knows that a certain student has great leadership qualities, that another is very musical, yet another a prized rugby player, and so on. He did not see the purpose of a Catholic university being the provision of skilled professionals to satisfy the demands of the employment market, although this may be a happy secondary effect. Newman was very much a creature of Oxford, described by Evelyn Waugh in one of the opening passages of Brideshead Revisited as a city of aquatint, renowned for her autumnal mists, her grey springtime, and the rare glory of her summer days, when the chestnut was in flower and the bells rang out high and clear over her gables and cupolas, exhaling the soft airs of centuries of youth. When Newman wrote about a Catholic university, what he imagined was a kind of Catholic Oxford. In his preface to the idea of a university, Newman wrote that the object of a Catholic university should be to make its students gentlemen. That's what he said. The idea of a Catholic university is to make its students gentlemen. Not simply, quote, to protect the interests and advance the dominion of science. A few paragraphs earlier he remarked, just as a commander wishes to have tall and well-formed and vigorous soldiers, not from any abstract devotion to the military standard of height or age, but for the purposes of war, and no one thinks it anything but natural and praiseworthy in him to be contemplating not abstract qualities, but his own living and breathing men. So in like manner, when the church founds a university, she is not cherishing talent, genius, or knowledge for their own sake, but for the sake of her children, with a view to their spiritual welfare and their religious influence, with the object of training them to fulfill their respective posts in life better, of making them more intelligent, capable, of society. In his Discourse 7, titled Knowledge Viewed in Relation to Professional Skill, Newman went on to talk about the culture of the intellect, and he recommended that instead of the intellect being formed or sacrificed to some particular trade or profession, it should be disciplined for its own sake. And he described such an intellectual formation as a liberal education. A liberal education which trains the intellect to operate well is one of the hallmarks of a gentleman. And Newman declared that to train students according to the standards of a liberal education is precisely the business of a university. 
He also drew a distinction between academies and universities. He saw the academies, for example, the Royal Academy for the Fine Arts, as places of research dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. While the university's work was primarily to provide a liberal education for its students. Many of these themes were highlighted in an article by Heinrich Bowling in the journal Hochland, published in 1952. Hochland was one of the most important journals of German Catholic culture in the first half of the 20th century. Bolin wrote that the name of Cardinal Newman will forever remain linked to the questions of the educational ideal of the university. This, he said, is because Newman not only foresaw the crisis of modernism in theology, but he also foresaw the crisis of the university. That is, the crisis about the university's meaning and purpose. Boland stated that apart from Plato's works, nothing contributes more light on these crises than Newman's reflections on the idea of a university. And he described Newman as nothing less than the greatest advocate for the ideal of liberal education on English soil. Boland noted that a liberal education does not necessarily create a Christian, but he said it does often create a gentleman. With Newman, Boland asserted that the nature and idea of a university stands and falls with its task of producing gentlemen. That educational fruit of Plato, which for more than 2,000 years has been the embodiment of Western humanism and the essence of the academic. Those words were written in 1952, some 16 years before 1968, after which time it is no longer self-evident that the university is the natural habitat of gentlemen or of Western humanism, or that being a gentleman is in any way the hallmark of the social type we call the academic. We will return to this problem, but for now it is important to note that for Newman, the production of gentlemen was just the baseline achievement. What Newman wanted was not mere generic grand gentlemen, such as was once produced by the great English public schools and the colleges of Oxford and Cambridge, typically infused with different strains of Anglicanism, some high church, some evangelical. But more specifically, Newman wanted a Catholic gentleman. As Bolin wrote in German, Newman's Bildungsideal is das des Katholischen Gentleman. There is no exact English equivalent of the German word Bildung, but soul formation would come closest. The Germans, especially those influenced by the Romantic movement and its concept of the beautiful soul, have long associated education with the formation of the soul, not with learning skills or absorbing pieces of information. It has been said that the Romantic movement of the 19th century, to which Newman clearly belonged, could be construed as a halfway house between nihilism on the one side and Catholicism on the other. 
Newman took the Catholic path, and in the context of pedagogical questions, he stood for the promotion of the Catholic gentleman as what the Germans called the Bildung's ideal. This conclusion begs the question, what is a Catholic gentleman? First, let us look at what Newman says about a common garden variety gentleman. In the idea of a university, he offers a rather long description that runs for several paragraphs. It includes the following highlights. A gentleman has his eyes on all his company. He is tender toward the bashful, gentle towards the distant, merciful towards the absurd. He can recollect to whom he is speaking. He guards against unseasonable illusions or topics which may irritate. He makes light of favours while he does them and seems to be receiving when he is conferring. He never speaks of, his, of himself except when compelled. From a long-sighted prudence, he observes the maxim that we should ever conduct ourselves toward our enemy as if he were one. He knows the weakness of human reason as well as its strength, its province and its limits. That's an abbreviated version of Newman's portrait of the generic no-brand gentleman. The Catholic gentleman, however, has extra qualities. He's not merely someone with a liberal education who has taken a few seminars on Catholic theology. He's not just someone who has read Ratzinger as well as Plato and Shakespeare, Dante as well as Goethe and Wordsworth. He is rather someone to whom, in addition to the knowledge of great Catholic literature and music, philosophy and theology, has been added some religious awe or grace in other words. Someone whose soul has been nourished by the sacraments. And when the word soul is used, for Newman, this does not mean simply the will and the intellect, but also the imagination, the memory, the capacity of intuition, and above all, the heart, the place of the integration of the entire human personality. A Catholic gentleman exists in a sacramental cosmos, and he has a sacramental imagination. He is therefore at home with paradoxes, mysteries, and analogies. He can think and synthetically. If someone were to suggest to him that they should spend their afternoon hunting orcs, he might respond with a line like, will you be carrying the ring or are you going to give that job to me? But he wouldn't look baffled by the proposition. The Catholic gentleman is at home with symbols and metaphors and playful banter. Like St. Philip Neri, he understands the importance of music and also of picnics for the work of evangelization. So where does all this leave us today? First, I would argue that most of our universities are what Newman would call factories, mints and treadmills places where thousands of students, known to the university only by their student numbers, pass exams to qualify for employment in a particular field. Some small number of institutions do retain an interest in the liberal arts, and these cater mostly for students from upper middle class families, 
where there is less concern about being trained for a particular job. However, for many of these elite institutions, the liberal arts are no longer linked to the transcendentals of truth, beauty and goodness, all of which are now regarded as bourgeois nonsense. Instead, in so many of these institutions, the liberal arts have morphed into social theory subjects like gender studies, and the objective is no longer to produce gentlemen, but to form social activists, people who act like trained assassins against the last vestiges of Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian civilization. This leaves us with only a very small number of academic institutions anywhere in the world where something like Newman's vision had any possibility of success. Most of these institutions operate at the level of liberal arts colleges that are specifically Catholic and have been established by visionary lay people who wanted their grandchildren to receive the kind of formation Newman set out in his idea of a university. Some extremely small number of such institutions can be found at the higher university level. Excluded are numerous institutions with the adjective Catholic in their title where no attempt is made to offer a specifically Christian formation of every aspect of the soul, or a specifically Christian integration of the various disciplines, but where there are merely buildings named after local Catholic worthies. A chapel, a chaplain who is a priest if you are lucky, and lots of opportunities to improve the welfare of minority groups. The accountants who normally run such institutions may be members of the Catholic Church, but the institutions themselves, their ethos, the content of their curricula, their marketing strategies, the beliefs of their faculty members, administrators and librarians, and the bureaucratic idioms found in their policies are not only not Christian, but in many cases simply the outcome of corporate ideology. Newman would not recognise these institutions as in any sense consistent with his own vision. As we celebrate the canonisation of John Henry Newman this week and reread his publications on the subject of Catholic education, the gulf between his vision and what we currently have is stark. Positively, however, the canonisation of Newman is an opportunity to present some constructive ideas on how to bridge the gulf between his vision and our reality. Obviously, the first thing we need to do is to take on board Newman's ideas, but expand them to include the liberal education of women, the other half of the human species, who also have memories, intellects, wills, imaginations and hearts, all in need of grace and development. Many of the principles are exactly the same, except that a certain amount of time would need to be spent distinguishing between the hallmarks of a well-educated Catholic lady and the hallmarks of a feminist. Or to put the idea differently, given the strength of feminist ideology in Western culture today, we would have to include in the curriculum of any young Catholic lady some seminars on the history of feminism, explaining the differences between first, second, third and fourth wave of feminism, 
structuralist and post-structuralist feminism, and between essentialist and constructivist feminism. The ideas contained in these intellectual cocktails would then need to be evaluated against a specifically Catholic theological anthropology, such as one finds in the work of Karen Wojtyla and Edith Stein, and contemporary scholars like Michelle Schumacher and Margaret McCarthy, who have built on the foundations of Wojtyla and Stein. In some areas, convergences of principle would be found, but in others, major anthropological differences would be highlighted. Having attended to this issue, it would become clear that elements of feminist theory and its spin-offs, queer theory and gender theory, are but logical developments of moves made on the intellectual chessboard of the European intelligentsia in earlier centuries. Therefore, in order to understand modern intellectual life, our would-be Catholic gentlemen and our would-be Catholic ladies would need to have an intellectual history of the collapse of the Christian synthesis of Jewish revelation and Greek philosophy from the 14th century down to the present. An understanding of the intellectual genealogies of the cultures of modernity and post-modernity would help young Catholics to understand the chaotic dictatorship of relativism into which they have been born. Subjects could be easily put together by drawing on the scholarship of people such as Christopher Dawson, Alastair McIntyre, Louis de Grey and Remy Bragg, in addition to some of Ratzinger's essays that track the nihilist virus as it works its way through the system of the European intelligentsia, especially the German intelligentsia, which has been the breeding ground of so much ideological thinking. The German intelligentsia is especially important for understanding the contemporary attacks on the notion of truth. Newman's idea of a university would be anathema to those immersed in the Frankfurt School's critical theory, which links truth to issues of class identity. In other words, one conclusion of some German intellectuals in the 20th century, clearly not all, is that there is no truth as Newman understood it. There is merely what the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci called the bourgeois mystification of knowledge. And various Marxist and postmodern alternatives which take the form of deconstructing and destabilizing elements of the Judaic, Greek and Christian patrimony. Moreover, Newman's idea that character and intelligence are linked, that education is about the development of the entire soul under the direction of grace, would not go down well with many contemporary social theorists who are not merely non-Christian but non-theistic. As a consequence, yet another element in the curriculum of a contemporary Catholic university seeking to realize Newman's pedagogical ideal would need to be a subject examining the theological presuppositions of social theories since social theories are never theologically neutral. While these subjects would take the form of assaults on Christian anthropology, Christian moral theology, and soteriology, and above all on the symbiotic relationships between faith and reason, nature and grace, history and ontology, 
Another suite of subjects would need to be offered on the great works of the patristic church doctors, and the reception of the cultural capital of the patristic era by the medieval authors, above all by St. Thomas Aquinas, his mentor, St. Albert the Great, and his friend, St. Bonaventure. In this way, students would have an understanding of the Catholic intellectual tradition, along with an understanding of its collapse into contemporary idealism, empiricism, and postmodern neo-nominalism. Finally, in the context of curriculum content, there would need to be a suite of subjects on the works of modern Catholic greats, to use the Oxford parlance. These would include writers like Tolkien, philosophers like Robert Spengler and Alastair MacIntyre, theologians like de Lubac, Balthasar, Guadi, Shivara, Ratzinger, and of course, Newman. Not only did Newman make significant contributions to the field of theological anthropology, with his attention to the love and reason relationship and the work of the human imagination, and to the field of moral theology with his treatment of conscience, and to the field of ecclesiology with his ideas on the proper exercise of the Petrine office, and to the field of fundamental theology with his famous essay on the development of doctrine and his grammar of assent. But it can also be read as a powerful intellectual antidote to the worldview of Friedrich Nietzsche. As Gottlieb Sörnjen, who was a young Father Ratzinger's doctoral supervisor, wrote, Newman understood the problem of an ethical atheism. He understood that contemporary atheism is a dogma, that is, a lived reality of which one is convinced and for which one is willing to die. Newman understood that one cannot defeat this kind of atheism with mere logic, only with a counter-narrative, a counter-theological anthropology, a counter-Christian humanism that is more intoxicating than anything else on offer in the intellectual salons. Having broadly highlighted elements in the curriculum of a Catholic university seeking to pursue Newman's Bildung's ideal, another macro-level issue is that of how do we bring together the formation of the whole person, including the heart, imagination, memory and will, with the formation of the intellect in an institutional context. One effective structure is that of a Catholic residential college under the governance of a religious order. Here there are opportunities to join with others in playing sport and musical instruments. There is the fun of attending formal dinners together, the fun of dressing up in academic regalia, and the opportunities for spiritual formation through one-on-one -on -one mentoring. And there is the possibility of being exposed to a couple of hundred other young Catholics, each with their own unique gifts to share with others. A residential university college, limited to a couple of hundred students, can be an alma mater, as Newman understood it. Another structure that has worked well is that of having a Catholic studies major offered within a non-Catholic university, such as the Catholic studies program offered at The Residential Catholic Liberal Arts College can combine the goods of both of these structures. 
There are quite a few examples of such institutions in the Anglophone world. For example, there is Christendom College in Virginia, Benedictine College in Kansas, and Campion College to name but a sample. There are also small private Catholic universities such as the University of Notre Dame in Australia, Franciscan University in Steubenville, and St. Mary's University in Twickenham in the United Kingdom, where the student numbers are small enough for the students to receive individual attention and a more well-rounded personal and pastoral formation. However, what is sometimes absent in these institutions is an immersion in the world of anti-Catholic ideas. Some students, the very brightest, will benefit from the intellectual equivalent of SAS-style commando training behind enemy lines, or in American parlance, Navy SEAL training behind, behind enemy lines, in classes conducted by people who no longer believe in truth. In other words, listening to the ideas of those who are hostile to the Catholic tradition, or indeed to the notion of truth itself, is a good way to gain a deeper understanding of the thought patterns of these social types. In this context, one is reminded of the distinction that Leo Strauss drew between what he called the gentleman and the philosophers. In Straussian parlance, the gentlemen are those who receive a liberal education rendering them sufficiently versatile to occupy all kinds of positions in public life, while the philosophers are those who are the pure academic types. What I have called commando training is only for the philosophers. It is far too dangerous and violent and potentially career-destroying for those not built for a life of unremitting intellectual combat. I think that Newman would appreciate this Straussian distinction and would be in favour of Catholic institutions training the ladies and gentlemen, while at the same time seeing the value in sending the intensely intellectual, destined to be professional academic types into the fray at the elite non-Catholic institutions, but with the proviso that they were supporting a network of soundly Catholic mentors including at least one Dominican or Oratorian. <laughs> Nonetheless, since in any given generation there will only be a handful of philosophers in the Straussian sense, the accent should be upon the liberal education of young Catholic men and women in such a way that every faculty of their soul, their memory, their wills, their imaginations, and above all their hearts, are developed so that they are able to operate with equally high levels of competence across a range of social positions. If the concepts of a lady and a gentleman sound too antiquated to contemporary ears, another way to describe Newman's Bildung's ideal would be by using Hanzo's von Balthasar's concept of an integrated personality. As Balthazar's colleague Jean Denelou expressed the idea, the real measure of history is not to be sought in the level of technical attainment, but in the more or less effective production of personalities, which represent the highest things we know in the mundane realm. 
And of course, saints are the greatest example of what uh, Balthasar or Janelure would describe as an integrated personality. Transposing Newman's Victorian references into to gen sorry, transposing Newman's Victorian references to gentlemen into the more contemporary parlance of Balthasar and Danelou, we can say that Newman thought that the purpose of a Catholic university is to foster the education of people with integrated personalities. The hallmark of a graduate from a Catholic Oxford would be an integrated personality, a personality that is driven by a fully Catholic heart, intellect, memory, will and imagination, all nourished by sacramental graces, all seeking to participate in that which is true, beautiful and good. Some would do this in a feminine way and others would do it in a masculine way. In the final analysis, a genuinely Catholic university following Newman's Bildungsideal would be an alma mater, not a foundry, not a meat, not a treadmill, or what we today call a sausage factory, or at least those of us in Australia call a sausage factory, because it would dare to form the human soul. It's the audacity to believe that the university, at least a Catholic university, exists to form the human soul. That is, I think, the number one hallmark of Blessed John Henry Newman's idea of a university. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Professor Rowland, for a wonderful exploration of Newman's idea of university as a process of forming the soul. It's that that I want to pick up and respond to because the whole essence of, um, of Newman as an educator is that of a priest and therefore involves all those with whom he came into contact. And so what I'd like to do is to take the idea of the formation of the soul and just, uh, just explore how it is that Newman sees that idea in all forms and aspects of education with which he was involved. So rather than, than, than reduplicate what Professor Rolander says, I want to take a slightly different angle from, uh, from the, the, the exploration of Newman as an educator. It begins really, I think, when we look at Newman as the newly ordained deacon in the Church of England in 1824. He wrote in his private journal that day, I have responsibility of souls on me to the day of my death. And that sentence is in many ways the key to understanding all that Blessed John Henry did as a pastor for the next 65 years. So many changes have come about in his life by August 1890, and yet in this, as in other ways, he remained consistent in all that he did. For Newman, being a priest meant being a pastor to many different individual persons, and a significant part of this responsibility he met through his role as a teacher, and not just as a teacher 
at Oriel, or indeed in Dublin, or to the higher class among the people who are specified in the Pope's brief founding the oratory in England, that in his mind, this duty unfailingly included all to whom he was providentially sent at many times in his life that didn't include any of those categories. So when, as a Catholic priest in 1863, he wrote once again in his private journal that from first to last, education has been my line. This indicates not only that he believed his particular gifts fitted him for this task, but also that his responsibility for souls lent a certain clarity of purpose in his own mind to the education, the place of education in his priestly work. So let me go back again, first of all, to Oxford. As a pastor, Newman was never simply a preacher standing before a congregation, nor was he concerned only with the intellectual explanation of the Christian faith. Even a month before he was ordained deacon, he had already taken on his first pastoral charge in the form of a curacy at a very poor St. Clement's beyond Morton Bridge, and it was here that he began his pastoral work. Whilst already being closely involved in academic and collegiate life, he systematically visited all his parishioners and quickly came to the realization that so few of his poor parishioners came to church, not because they consciously rejected religion, but because they practically knew nothing about it. So characteristically, Newman set about establishing something entirely new in St. Clement's, a Sunday school for the children of the parish. The prevailing view among the local clergy of the district and its people seems to have been that they were too poor and ignorant to require very much involvement from their pastors, particularly if those pastors were intensely engaged in university teaching. But not so These people had souls, and they needed saving, and hence also good sound instruction and formation. But not only did they have souls, as Newman typically realised, they also had bodies. So Newman not only appealed for financial help to build a gallery in the church where the Sunday school could meet regularly, but was careful and thoughtful enough to persuade his friend Pusey to pay for a stove to heat the gallery in winter. Now at St. Clements, he preached that education is not of knowledge. To educate, he said, is to work together with God for the salvation of souls. He already anticipated the idea which he would later develop in his Tamworth Reading Room Letters condemning the proposition that, in proportion as men know more, they will be better men. For, he said, it's one thing to know the truth, and altogether a different thing to love it. He also warns against the notion that the end of education is merely to fit persons for their respective stations in life. For thus, education is robbed of its religious character and made the mere instrument of worldly ambition. And since he was here principally addressing the parents of those children he was instructing in the Sunday school, 
He was able to remind them that they had a grave responsibility to form in them good habits of conscientiousness, diligence, truth, and humility. It was also at St. Clement's that Newman first framed the principle which would guide his entire educational work, that the end of education is to affect the heart. Hence he explained children separately and address ourselves to them almost one by one. Many years later, in Littlemore, when Newman had first gone to care for that hitherto much neglected and far-flung corner of St. Mary's Parish, he not only spent time in intellectual research and the intense indiscipline of prayer, but he built the village as a church in which he ministered to them spiritually and even took over the teaching of the village school. And here, once again, he didn't neglect the physical needs of the children of the poor district, writing to his sister Jemima that he had been reforming, or at least lecturing against the uncombed hair and dirty faces of hands. And although he rather self-deprecatingly claimed to Jemima that he was not deep in the philosophy of schoolgirl tidiness, we know that he did take such responsibilities seriously by subscribing to a new educational journal in which we can deduce from those pages that he cut that he read specifically about the teaching of music, discipline, and, yes, feminine hygiene. Music was also a central part of his pedagogy, and he taught the children to sing both for church services and for their own recreation, and told his curate Bloxham that their voices are so thrilling as to make one sick with love. The children of Littlemore got into his heart just as much as he aimed to get into theirs. So by the time that he returned to England as a Catholic priest in 1848, therefore, Newman had plenty of experience of teaching at all social and intellectual levels and was therefore in no way unprepared to meet the needs of one of the poorest districts in Birmingham, Derrit End, where he was first asked to work by the bishop until a permanent home could be found for the oratory. Here, he taught catechism to a hundred children in the evenings because they were all out of work in the day, as well as founding a Sunday school. He also gave twice weekly evening lectures to the adults who similarly were working all day. These poor people were so grateful to him and so loved him that when he rushed off at a day's notice to help the priest and people of nearby village of Bilston, with the grip of a cholera epidemic, they wailed inconsolably and feared for his life. He had to put a notice up on his confessional, reassuring his penitents that he would be back soon. He became so close to them that lice even got all over his skin, but the people had got under it. He wasn't even deterred by the stench of the place. And even when the oratory moved from Derrit End to more salubrious Edgbaston a year or so later, he didn't leave behind his care for the poor, but set up various mission schools in Edgbaston itself and the neighbouring district of Smelik. And since he was, by this time often in Dublin, heavily involved in setting up the university, he delegated his work to his oratorian confreres, Edward Caswell and Nicholas Darnall, writing regularly to them from Dublin 
to inquire of them how they were progressing and encouraging them in this work. For Newman the priest, the task of education followed necessarily and urgently from the command to baptize. For as he said again at St. Clement's, to baptize and not to educate is a grievous sin. This duty, which he always understood as being grounded in personal influence, is the origin of his famous cardinalation motto, Cor at Cor Loquitur. Education was a duty which he had not only taken on at his ordination, but was the expression of his own pastoral heart. And he manifested this priestly heart in his personal dedication, not only to all kinds of people, at all levels of education, but to all individuals, according to their different needs and abilities indeed, but alike for their salvation and to prepare them all to share the same divine citizenship that he now enjoys in heaven. As St. Philip, his great patron, said, the great thing is to become saints. <laughs>